Now, I wonder, um, have you ever been close to a roaring lion? Uh, a good many years ago, um, Faith and I went to Whipsnade Zoo, and we stood next to the lion enclosure, and it was just before feeding time. Uh, and it was an awesome experience. The lions were, were roaring, uh, and the noise they made, it, it wasn't just loud, but it, it made our, our bodies tremble. It made our heads spin, and you could literally feel the ground shaking. It was a, an amazing experience. Had those lions not have been locked up behind sturdy bars, then it would have been absolutely terrifying. Well, in our passage this evening, Peter tells us that as believers in Christ, we have an enemy, and he likens that enemy to a roaring lion. Now, before we look at what Peter has to say about this enemy, um, let us remind ourselves of the context. We we finished last time looking at verses 6 and 7 where Peter said, Humble yourselves therefore under the mighty hand of God so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. Now that could give the impression that Peter was saying that we are to abdicate all personal responsibility and just leave everything to God. That there was a, a popular t- teaching some time ago. I don't think it's quite as common nowadays, but no doubt it still still lingers in, in some circles. Uh, and that uh, teaching really was uh, summed up in the slogan, let go and let God. Uh, however, that notion really is debunked uh, as soon as you look uh, and see what Peter goes on to say. He begins verse 18 by, uh, by giving a, a couple of exhortations which really are quite closely linked together. They're quite closely related. Firstly, he said, be sober-minded, or, or the NIV puts that as be self-controlled. But... Uh, you know, the, the, the sense really is of being, of being clear-headed, being clear-minded. It's the opposite of being sleepy or, or drowsy. And then the second uh, exhortation he gives there is, be watchful. Or the NIV puts that as, be alert. So the picture there really is of a, a soldier on sentry duty, keeping a lookout for danger. And you can see how the two are are linked together, can't you? Because you can't be watchful and alert if you're sleepy, if you're drowsy. And so the exhortation is to be both sober-minded or self-controlled and watchful or alert. So the overall idea is that of of being vigilant and being alert and on the lookout for danger. So you see, knowing that you're under the mighty hand of God... And knowing that he cares for you mustn't make us complacent. It doesn't mean that we can simply sit back and do nothing uh, in the knowledge that God will take care of it all. The fact that God is sovereign doesn't mean uh, that we can just wash our hands of our responsibility. Why do we need to be sober-minded and watchful? 
Well, in the passage that follows, we see that Peter points out a scary reality, uh, a staunch resistance, and he reminds us that we have a sovereign restorer. Alliteration lives. (laughs) So, a scary reality. Uh, That scary reality is the fact that we have an adversary. We have an enemy. And we see that as Peter says in verse 8, your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. In those words, we see who our adversary is, uh, we see what our adversary is like, and what our adversary intends. So what? So who is our adversary? Well, Peter speaks of your adversary, the devil. Now, I've never been to Jersey, but apparently uh, there's a blowhole on the Jersey coast known as the Devil's Hole. Um, it's a natural crater in the solid cliff, And its name was coined in the 19th century because in 1851 a French boat uh, was shipwrecked nearby and the figurehead from that boat uh, was washed uh, into the hole uh, and lodged there. It was washed in by the tide and it lodged there. And then a local sculptor came along and transformed that figurehead into a wooden devil complete with horns, forked tail, and a leering grin. And that is now something of a tourist attraction. Uh, And I'm sure that most of those who go to to visit it, they'll laugh, they'll uh, they'll smile when, when they see this curious novelty, and then just dismiss the devil as being far fetched, uh, a fictional character, something to chuckle about and and nothing more. And of course, it's very easy, isn't it, to dismiss such a a, a contrived depiction of the devil. But we need to be very clear that the devil is a real being. Uh, Peter would hardly exhort us to be watchful for an enemy that doesn't actually exist, would he? He wouldn't exhort us to be on the lookout for this strange, cartoon-like character. Uh, 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 The devil is real and he is a real enemy, and that's why Peter exhorts us to be on our guard, to be uh, uh, on the lookout for him. Now, the Greek word uh, that's been translated here as devil is diabolos, and that is uh, the Greek translation of the Hebrew word Satan. So that's why we get the devil and Satan used interchangeably. Same person, just one's a, a translation of the Greek and one is a Hebrew word. The word devil occurs in the Bible uh, 33 times and Satan appears 49 times. So the word of God certainly takes our adversary very seriously. The, the literal meaning of diabolos or Satan it is slanderer or accuser, and he's consistently mentioned throughout the word of God as, as the enemy of God and the enemy of God's people. Uh, as such, he's our adversary, and we need to, be, to take him seriously. We need to be 
on Agard against him. Um, that's why Paul says in Ephesians 6.11, put on the whole armour of God. Why? That you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. So our adversary is the devil. He is real. We must take him seriously and we must guard against him. So having shown that our adversary is the devil, the next question that Peter answers is, what is our adversary like? Well, before we see what Peter specifically mentions here, I think we must recognise that the devil has many facets. There are many aspects of him and the way he works. Uh, Edward Reynolds, who I'm sure you've all heard of, um, he was actually the Bishop of Norwich in the 17th century, um, he made this comment... Um, Satan has three titles in scripture, setting forth his malignity against the church of God. A dragon, to note his malice, a serpent, to note his subtlety, and a lion, to note his strength. Now, undoubtedly, the devil is malicious, and undoubtedly, the devil is subtle. You think of how he enticed Adam and Eve into disobeying God uh, you think of his, his subtle lies when he was trying to, to tempt Jesus in the wilderness and Jesus himself spoke of him didn't he as being a liar and the father of lies uh, Paul says that Satan disguises himself as an angel of light so he's tricky uh, he can be, be cunning and deceitful uh, but here Peter, I think, focuses on the third of those titles. He tells us that the devil prowls around like a roaring lion. He's not a pussycat. That's why I not only said that the devil is a reality, but he's a scary reality. He's, He's an enemy who is frighteningly powerful. Now, I did struggle for a while with that phrase, prowls around like a roaring lion. Um, there seems to be a bit of a contradiction there. You know, a lion on the prowl suggests a lion that's stalking its prey. And you'd expect it to be quiet. You'd expect it to be stealthy. It's hardly going to be roaring and terrifying all the, the game uh, for miles around, is it? Uh, and it surprised me that none of the commentators uh, seem to pick up on that apparent contradiction But it bothered me, and I I couldn't help but but wonder if there was some deep spiritual significance waiting to be discovered there. Um, Eventually, I did solve the conundrum, uh, but not by some amazing sudden insight, so I'm not about to dazzlingly (coughs) dazzlingly pull an expository rabbit out out of the hat. The explanation is much more mundane. The fact is that it's a poor translation here. (laughs) Um, the the words that are both the ESV and NIV they've both translated as prowls but the Greek word actually simply means walks Um, I suspect that because Peter goes on to speak of the devil seeking someone to devour the the translators have, have read the idea of a prowling lion 
into the text in, instead of giving the literal translation. Um, the New King James Version, which is one a version that I'm not necessarily a great fan of, but it correctly says, your adversary the devil walks about like a roaring lion. So the picture that Peter has in mind here isn't of the devil stealthily stalking his prey. Um, he certainly does that sometimes. But what Peter has in mind here is the idea of the devil strutting his stuff uh, and parading his power, his roaring to, to taunt and intimidate uh, and terrify believers in Christ. How does Peter envisage the devil doing that? Well, I think he tells us in verse 9, where he goes on to say, knowing that the same kinds of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. And then continuing in verse 10, he says, and after you have suffered a little while. So suffering has been a very prominent and recurrent theme, hasn't it, throughout the letter. And Peter is now suggesting that when believers suffer for the sake of Christ, it's because our adversary, the devil, is unleashing his power against them. So the devil is not only our adversary, he's a powerful adversary who can inflict suffering upon us. Now, you might be a bit confused. You might think to yourself, well, haven't we seen previously in the letter that God uses uh, our suffering to, to, to refine us and, and to purify us? And now we're saying that the devil inflicts suffering upon us. Isn't there some sort of contradiction there? Well, no, remember that God is sovereign over everything, and that includes the devil. Yes, the devil does his worst and intends to harm us, but God is always in control, and God is always working out his good purposes, despite the, the devil's worst intentions, despite his wicked intentions. Think of Job. Um, Satan inflicted terrible suffering upon Job, didn't he? But God was in control throughout, and God worked it all out for good. Or, or think of Paul's thorn in the flesh. That was from the devil. Peter described it as a messenger of Satan to harass me. Satan sent it, and his intention was to do Paul harm. And three times we're told Paul pleaded with the Lord to remove it, and yet he didn't. Well, was that because the Lord was unable to do so? Of course not. Was it because he was uncaring? Of course not. Well, was it that he couldn't be bothered? Well, of course not. No, he, he was overruling Satan's intentions and using Paul's thorn in the flesh to keep him from becoming conceited, to teach him to be content and to trust in the power of Christ. So what the devil was doing to harm Paul, the Lord was using to build him up and strengthen him and maintain him. So having shown our adversary, the devil, to be powerful, the next question that Peter answers is, what does our adversary intend? Well, Peter goes on to tell us that our adversary, the devil, is seeking someone 
to devour. And this is where it gets really scary, isn't it? You know, this is a very graphic and powerful statement. His intention isn't merely to intimidate us or, or frighten us or, or cow us into submission. His aim is our destruction. He's seeking to devour us. And that's a, a chilling thought. Not, not only do we have a powerful enemy, we have an enemy who's intent on our destruction. That's the scary reality that confronts us. And I wonder how seriously we take that. You know, I'm, I'm absolutely certain that none of us fall for the, the laughable caricature of the devil with horns and forked tail and giant toasting fork. Now, I'm sure we, we all accept that he's, he's real. We, we all believe him to, to really exist. We, we all agree that he's our enemy. But do we perhaps tend to view him as well, perhaps a bit of an irritant in our lives? You know, a, a minor problem. But we need to recognise how powerful and dangerous and malicious he is. Well, against that background... Uh, Peter goes on to encourage a staunch resistance. Begins verse 9 by saying, resist him firm in your faith. See, we're not merely to be watchful. We're not merely to be on the lookout for our adversary, the devil. We're to be watchful in order to do something when we detect him. But there's little point in in. in Soldiers on sentry duty standing guard, if when they see the enemy coming, they just sort of stand aside and open the gates and say, this way, sirs. Mm -hmm. No, they're on the lookout so that they can repel the enemy when they spot them coming. And so we see that Peter goes on to tell us to resist him. And that's a daunting prospect, isn't it? How are we to go about resisting the devil who's like a roaring lion and is seeking to devour us you like the title of the Manic Street Preachers album, it's very tempting to conclude resistance is futile you know, in our own strength it is, isn't it? Oh, we, we can attempt to resist the devil but we can't possibly hope to prevail you know, we're not stronger than the devil we're not more cunning than the devil how can we expect to succeed in resisting him? well Peter goes on to tell us the manner of this resistance by saying you resist by being firm in your faith. You notice he doesn't speak of being firm in faith. He's not saying uh, have a, a positive, optimistic outlook and hope for the best. And neither is he speaking of being firm in the faith. He's not saying uh, that, that you need to be well grounded in Christian doctrine, be a, a theological uh, encyclopedia, and that will enable you to prevail against the devil. No, he says to resist the devil by being firm in your faith. That that is your your personal trust in what God has promised and in what he has accomplished through the work of Christ. You're not strong enough to overcome the, the devil's power, but you are to firmly believe that your loving Heavenly Father who cares for you is strong enough to overcome the devil's 
power for you. Now, James also um, speaks of resisting the devil. Cue for a song, is it coming? No, maybe not. <laughs> I'm going to quote uh, James 4 verse 7 and Chris was saying at the beginning that, that there is a uh, this verse has been put to, to uh, put to a tune that, uh, that Calvin and Lewis know but they've, they've gone shy never mind I thought it would be good to have an interlude just to sort of <laughs> lighten the flow of things but James 4 verse 7 says submit yourselves therefore to God resist the devil and he will flee from you and you notice he doesn't simply say resist the devil but just as Peter says resist him firm in your faith so James says that before you resist the devil you are to submit yourselves therefore to God that's James's way of saying to put your trust in God like like Peter he's saying resist the devil firm in your faith and what's the result well James says and he will flee from you he'll turn and run you can't defeat the devil for yourself but if you're firm in your faith, he will be defeated. So the manner of this resistance is to be firm in your faith. Now that doesn't mean that we need do nothing to resist the devil apart from trust in the Lord. As we were thinking before, we're not to merely let go and let God. We're to work and put effort into resisting the devil. We saw earlier that Paul exhorts us in Ephesians 6 to put on the whole armour of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil but God has provided us with armour and why has he done that? well it's not just so that we can stand around looking splendid in our our shiny armour he's given it so we can stand against the devil we're to use it in battle as we resist the devil and what does that involve? Well, from Paul's description of the armour in Ephesians 6, we see that it involves being under the truth and growing in righteousness and eager to spread the gospel and maintaining our faith in all circumstances and using the word of God and being constant in prayer. We're to employ all of those things to actively resist the devil. But our trust is not to be in what we do, but in our God. You're to resist the devil firm in your faith. Of course, being attacked by the devil and having him roaring at you, uh, that is an intimidating and discouraging thing, isn't it? So Peter goes on to give us an encouragement in resisting the devil. Having said resist him firm in your faith... He continues in verse 9 by saying, knowing that. He's saying that there's encouragement in resisting the devil in knowing something, in being aware of something, in remembering something. And what's that comforting knowledge? Well, Peter says that it's the same kind of suffering are being experienced by your brotherhood throughout the world. At the very least, he's providing an encouragement to them uh, in their sufferings and in standing firm uh, by assuring them that they're not alone in this. You know, they, they've not been 
singled out for unfair treatment, others are suffering too. Um, and you see, he refers to the same kinds of suffering. So others might not be suffering in exactly the same way, but in one way or another, others are also suffering for the sake of Christ. And there's a certain reassurance in knowing that others are suffering too. It, it helps to know that you're not the only one. It helps to know that you're not alone. It helps to know that we're in it together. But there's much more to it than that. The encouragement is not simply that there are others who are also experiencing suffering, but that those others are your brotherhood throughout the world. It's not uh, that there are simply lots of individuals who are suffering and are each expected to resist on their own. We're part of a brotherhood. And that brotherhood extends throughout the world. The devil is the enemy of all of our brothers and sisters in Christ throughout the whole world. He roars uh, at all of us. And we're all to resist him together. We're not only to resist the devil, but we're to be united with our brothers and sisters in Christ in resisting the devil. So we're to resist the devil, firm in our faith, united against him, with our brothers and sisters in Christ. But our ultimate encouragement is that we have a sovereign restorer. See, Peter continues in verses uh, 10 to 11 by saying, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you to him be the dominion for ever and ever. Amen. Here Peter tells us that the, the suffering that our adversary, the devil, inflicts is only for a little while. Now, at the time, it might feel as though it's lasting for a long time. It might be a lifetime. It might feel as though it's never-ending. But in real terms, in, in eternal uh, in eternal sense, in, in, the, in the perspective of eternity, it's a little while. It's going to end because ultimately the devil is going to be defeated by our sovereign restorer. Peter describes uh, him uh, in, in verses 10 to 11 and we're told who he is, what he's done, what he'll do and we're assured of his sovereign power. So, who is our sovereign restorer? Peter describes him here as the God of all grace. Yeah, he's none other than the one true living God. And of course, all sorts of, of things are true of God. He, he has many attributes. Just look at the, the theological tones on the attributes of God. Um, many, many attributes uh, belong to him. But Peter is here emphasising the fact that he's the God of all grace. He's gracious. He deals with us graciously. And that's the exact opposite, isn't it, of our adversary, the devil, who's seeking someone to devour. How much more wonderful is the thought of being dealt with graciously? What a contrast between being devoured and being dealt with graciously. He's the God of 
all grace. He deals with us graciously. The devil's out to cause us harm and even destroy us. But God freely gives his people good things that they don't deserve. Again, he does that in all sorts of ways. But Paul goes on to mention one way in particular. So what's our sovereign restorer done? Well, Peter tells us that he's the one who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ. You see, he's shown his grace and exercised his grace towards us in calling us. That's much more than him simply inviting us to to come to himself. It's a powerful, irresistible, effective calling that, that causes us to actually come. You see the sense of it if you look at Paul's words in Romans 8, 28 to 30. Uh, and we know that for those who love God, all things work together for good, for those who are called according to his purposes. That those who have been called in this sense have been called in keeping with the purpose that God is working out. He has a purpose in calling them, and we see that purpose uh, is, as Paul continues by saying, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed to the image of his Son, in order that he might be the firstborn among many brothers. And those whom he predestined, he also called. And those whom he called, he also justified, And those whom he justified, he also glorified. You see, God's calling is part of this wonderful, interlinked series uh, of events, a sequence of events. His calling leads to justification. That's being made right with God. That, in turn, ultimately leads to being glorified. And that's exactly what Peter's talking about, isn't it? Peter has said that the God of all grace has called us... Uh, to, to his eternal glory. Notice the contrast between his eternal glory and the suffering for a little while at the hands of our adversary, the devil. A little suffering is a small price to pay for eternal glory. And then notice that Peter says that this is in Christ. Now, grammatically, it could either be saying that we are called in Christ or that the the eternal glory is in Christ. don't think we need to agonise over which is correct. The fact is that God has called us to faith in Christ and through that faith in Christ we are justified on the basis of what Christ has done. And because we've been justified, we will be brought to glory. God has called us to this and it's all in and through the Lord Jesus Christ. So having graciously called us, what will our sovereign restorer graciously do? Well Peter goes on to say that the God of all grace will himself restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. You notice he doesn't simply say that the God of all grace will do that. He adds himself it's stressing God's personal involvement this is something that God himself is going to do he's not uh, removed from us in our our suffering Uh, we saw last time didn't we that 
He cares for you. Well, that care, it's not just thinking about us or sympathising with us or wishing the best for us. No, it involves him personally doing something for us. Uh, remember that this is an act of grace. We, we, we don't deserve it. We, we don't have to earn it. Uh, so we don't have to be stressed about uh, whether he'll do it or not. Peter's clear. The God of all grace will himself do it. And what does he do? Well, Peter says that what he does is restore, confirm, strengthen and establish you. Um, those four terms are all quite similar in many ways. They're all very closely related. And I don't think we need to go into the subtle differences in meaning between them. I don't think Paul is here telling us four specific things that God is going to do for those he's called. Rather, I think he's just piling up these terms to emphasise that having called us, the God of all grace is, is personally guarding and protecting us and preparing us for the glory that he has promised. And Peter said much the same thing back at the beginning of his letter in verses 3 to 5 of chapter 1. He said, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to his great mercy, he has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead to an inheritance that is imperishable, undefiled and unfading, kept in heaven for you, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. You see, God is guarding those he's called until the salvation that's ready to be revealed in the last time. That's when we will enter the eternal glory to which we've been called. Right up until then, the God of all grace is guarding us. Our adversary, the devil, is out to devour us. But the God of all grace is doing the opposite. He's countering the devil. He's there to restore, confirm, strengthen and establish. We rest in the knowledge that we're those who by God's power are being guarded. They're like a, 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 roaring lion, a, a, a roaring lion, the devil is strong and intimidating, but he's no match for the power of God, is he? So the last thing we, we see in the passage is that Peter assures us of God's sovereign power by saying to him be the dominion forever and ever. God's power is so great that it gives him dominion. He's not only powerful, he's dominant. He overpowers everyone, everything. He's all powerful. Now, in the history of the world, there have been various dominant powers, haven't there? Nations have risen and fallen, empires have grown and, and collapsed. Uh, they, they seem to be insuperable powers. And at the time, people couldn't imagine anything other than them continuing to dominate. But they always fall in the end, don't they? Or to bring it down to a, a, another level, last, uh, last year was the World Cup. Uh, and going into the World Cup, Germany began as reigning champions. Mm -hmm. That They were the, the dominant power, strongly fancied to, to win it again. And yet they were very quickly knocked out that they weren't dominant anymore. Their dominion came to an end. 
And now, of course, we've got the Cricket World Cup starting this week. And England go into that as the dominant force in one-day cricket. And they are strongly tipped to win it. And then, of course, they had a warm-up match against Australia yesterday and lost. So it looks as though England's dominion might be over before the competition's even started. But it doesn't matter what sphere you look at, um, the dominant powers always come to an end, don't they? Uh, they, 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 they? They don't last forever. But you see, God's dominion is forever and ever. Uh, the response of faith to God's dominion being forever and ever is surely, as Peter says, hearty amen. We, we trust in God's never-ending almighty power. So we have an adversary who is like a roaring lion and is out to devour us and inflict suffering upon us. Rather than being intimidated by him, we are to resist him, firm in our faith. That means trusting in the God of all grace who has called us to his glory in Christ. He has dominion forever and ever and will guard us until we're finally brought to glory. In the battle between the roaring lion and the God of all grace, there's only one winner. So let us uh, trust in, in him. Let us remain firm in our faith. I just want to close by really um, reading the words that John Piper used um, at the end of his sermon when he preached on this passage. He said, So when Satan roars with his suffering in your face and threatens to devour you, say the God of all grace has called me to his eternal glory in Christ. And after I have suffered a little while from your claws and fangs, he will perfect and confirm and strengthen and establish me. He is a God of all grace. He is a God of absolute dominion. You can maul me. You can even kill me. But you cannot devour me. He has called me to glory. And he will get me to glory. I may be encouraged by those words.